welcome, uh, welcome everybody to this book launch, uh, launching a rope from the sky, the making and making of the world's newest state. Uh, this launch, we're very glad uh, to uh, to be collaborating. Um, my name is uh, Johan Norgård Hermstad. I'm the director of the Norwegian Council for Africa, and we're very glad to co-host this uh, this event uh, with UNDP. Oslo Governance uh, Center. Uh, very glad to be joined by uh, Zach Burton, the author, author of, the, of the book, of course. Um, and also very glad to see uh, so many people wanting to uh, get away from the, from the sunny streets of Oslo uh, to delve into this quite complex and not always uh, too optimistic uh, story of, of the world's newest um, state. Um, I just want to uh, say that uh, this is this is a book from an author which who is uh, quite well known for his for his work, and we're dealing with complex um, political processes, which I know that a lot of people in the audience have been quite close uh, close on. So I'm very glad to 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 sort of invite you all to not only. Uh, Listen to the to the conversation, but, but also to to actively take part uh, afterwards. And it's a, and it's also a book which I which I know that um, that Mr. Virgin has put a lot of uh, time and effort into making uh, accessible to anyone, also the non-expert. And I'm glad uh, if some of the some of you in the audience who are not necessarily you don't need to be intimately uh, uh, involved with uh, and have been following South Sudan for a long time in order to to take part in the Q and A. Uh, session, so feel free to do that. Um, I should also uh, make clear to you uh, before we start that this event is going to be uh, recorded and, and uh, subject to no technical difficulty. It's, it's going to be uh, available as a podcast uh, uh, later on, uh, so for you to share with anyone uh, who couldn't make it this evening, of course. So just search for the Norwegian Council for Africa or or Fellas Role for Africa in your podcast um, item or where, wherever you get your podcast. Okay, so uh, here for the conversation, uh, we have, of course, Zach Virgin, a writer, for foreign policy analyst, former dip diplomat. He's uh, spent at least 13 years uh, of working in international politics and peace and conflict issues. Currently, he's at uh, the Brookings Institution's Doha Center, um, more now looking into issues of the like Red Sea uh, region uh, politics. Um, and he's a lecturer of international affairs at Princeton. Uh, and he's, of course, served at the State Department during the administration of President Obama and was directly involved in the South Sudan peace process uh, also having served as a senior analyst for the International Crisis Group in the Horn of Africa and an advisor on UN operations and multilateral affairs in New York. He's joined in conversation with Mr. Andres Janssen, advisor um, now, senior, uh, senior research and policy advisor at the Oslo Governance Center. Um, he has a background uh, quite extensive background from the Norwegian Ministry for Foreign Affairs, 
Um, he's also previously uh, served, of course, as a special envoy to the Sudan and South Sudan. Um, and he took part in the Sudan peace negotiations, um, both as an observer from, um, from the Norwegian side, and also as part of the IGAD um, negotiating team. Uh, and having worked quite closely on, on the issues concerning wealth sharing, quite interestingly. Uh, he also has, has an extensive background from uh, NIE, Nor the Nordic Africa Institute, uh, SUM, uh, the Center for Development and Environment at the University of Oslo, PRIO here in Oslo, and he holds, doc holds a doctorate from the University of Bergen. Um, no need to uh, further stress that uh, we have a very competent pair of uh, people to discuss the content of the book. Uh, we look forward to the talk and uh, I welcome you all to also uh, take part in the conversation uh, towards the end of the event and also not least uh, afterwards there's going to be a, a book signing uh, out by the bookshop. The, the book is of course uh, available there uh, for you to buy and, and to get uh, Zach's uh, signature. Okay, so with that, Please, Andre and Zach. Right, thank you. Um, of course, it's a pleasure to see so many people here and also to see so many friends. I'm not going to say a whole lot this evening. I'll just ask a few questions and I'll introduce something in the beginning because I know that anybody who's written a book, you know, it, the one thing they really, really, really look forward to is to talk about it. So I won't <laughs> take, I won't take that, <laughs> that away for you. Uh, I will, however, introduce my first question by saying that, of course, we have known each other for quite a long time. Uh, we met when we were both uh, diplomats, um, and I used to—I got to know you, you through you your were writing. You were an elder diplomat. I was an elder diplomat, and you <laughs> were one of these upshots that came with, with the Obama administration and then disappeared. Okay. Uh, I knew you f first from your say policy work and your analysis. Uh, you worked for the International Crisis Group, wrote policy notes. Uh, I saw the uh, positions papers you wrote for the Troika as part of the U.S. administration. You wrote then in a song that was very different from this book. So just to set it off, I was just wondering why did you choose to write this kind of book? And also, for those who have not had the benefit of reading it yet, and I really do recommend you to, to read the book, but if you could just explain a little bit about why you chose this title. So the background for this, um, for the, the, the style of book, because this is not a normal policy book. Yeah. This is not an academic study. It's a different song. So why you chose that and also the title? Yeah, sure. Uh, let me just first say thank you uh, to the council for hosting and, and to the Oslo Governance Center and to everyone for coming. Uh, likewise, some very, very familiar faces uh, who I'm um, honored to see here and join us in the, in the conversation. I will also just briefly say uh, I'm very happy to be here uh, because a couple hours ago I thought I might have to get bailed out of jail by Andre because uh, I was riding the metro to come here and I uh, had my train ticket, but I did not validate it. So I was uh, seriously stopped and seriously frisked and had to produce my passport and, and a return ticket out of Oslo. So I was, I was very impressed with the thoroughness, uh, but uh, lucky to be here. So anyway, <laughs> thanks, you, thanks you all. Um, why I wrote the book and the title. So the title um, is, a, is a nilotic folktale that I came upon um, somewhere along the way during my uh, first years in South Sudan. Um, but in these folktales, um, the earth and the sky were once linked by a rope. 
and that meant that the South Sudanese people could travel up and down that rope freely, uh, connecting the earth and the heavens. And they had access to the gods uh, and to eternal life. Uh, tragically, on account of human error, um, uh, that rope was severed. Uh, and forever after, the people of South Sudan were resigned to the uh, difficulty uh, and to the suffering and to the mortality uh, that is the human condition. Um, so uh, I thought in some ways, in a bittersweet way, this, this book, uh, like that parable, is also a story of paradise lost. Um, why I chose to write it, um, or why did I chose to write it this way. Um, so, you know, I think for a general audience, uh, <laughs> not necessarily those folks in the front rows here, uh, but for a general audience, Sudan is a faraway place, uh, right? Uh, it's hard to connect with, and yet, for a variety of reasons, it registers widely in popular consciousness, right? Um, uh, people uh, either know about the uh, popular campaign to save Darfur, right? Uh, save in quotes. Uh, they know about the lost boys who escaped civil war in Sudan and settled uh, all across the West. Uh, some people uh, on the book tour so far only know uh, the words George Clooney, right? Um, <laughs> and yet, uh, many people don't know this extraordinary story about Africa's largest state, uh, how it was uh, split in two, um, this long liberation struggle, uh, this euphoric eye of independence, uh, and the tragic uh, unraveling that we know followed. And so given the wide appeal of this story and, and, uh, and the sort of large advocacy movements involved, um, and, and lastly, uh, I think, uh, a desire to l learn lessons, uh, I wanted to write a book that was as best I could accessible, right? Uh, one that was interesting and told uh, uh, not about me, uh, not about just reserved foreign policy, but told through the eyes of its characters, right? So along the way in the story, we meet uh, both South Sudan's uh, big men uh, who, who animate much of this story, arguably too much of this story, um, and they are, uh, I will underscore here, they are mostly men. Um, <clears throat> but also, uh, it's every man. So we made a series of characters along the way. Um, it's more interesting to hear their story, I think, than to uh, hear a detached one from the outside. And so uh, I tried to bring people inside the story to this faraway place, give them a sense of the place, the colors, the feel, the smell. Uh, uh, and, and I was honored to have a lot of South Sudanese friends, uh, new and old, uh, participate and contribute to this book. So I hope my goal is that it, it does uh, real justice and real hard thinking about lessons learned, uh, something I don't think we are very good at. Um, I think we're particularly bad at it when it comes to Africa, um, but also one that is uh, accessible uh, and engaging and, and, and hopefully reads, uh, reads almost more like a novel, a kind of a journalistic approach. So uh, I don't know whether I succeeded, but I hope if you're interested, you'll have a look and let me know. Thank you. Uh, again, I would recommend the book. And, and uh, when you read this, you should also read uh, Deborah Scargings, you know, Emma's Walk. They're quite similar, but in a different approach. Now, the two things I, I want to pick up on in your answer before we could uh, later on move to lessons learned. You, you say that, you know, um, there was this focus on, on Sudan. Why Sudan? There are so many, you know, why this you know, appeal in America, but also here in Norway, where people are from Norwegian People's Aid, very different group from the ones that were found, you know, Sudan attractive in, in the States. So why, why the Sudan and why could, you know, the case of South Sudan be so appealing to so different constituencies? Yeah. Um, yeah, so just for some context, as I mentioned, I think and hope that this is first a story about 
South Sudan and about the South Sudanese people told as much as possible uh, through their eyes. You know, a story about hope and liberation and survival and struggle and, and hopefully about redemption. But it, it's also, I think Sudan is a case um, that uh, usefully highlights uh, the sort of changing role of the West in, in it, or, or the role, the diminishing influence of the West in a changing global order. Uh, so it's also a book about uh, the West, the United States, Norway, and other partners uh, at their best, these big-hearted uh, principles and, and, and ideals, uh, but also about its uh, reckoning, really, a struggle to reckon with um, that changing or diminishing influence. Um, so that, that's first some context. Um, in terms of, I do go into the book in quite uh, a lot of detail about uh, how and why uh, this became such a widely known issue. And, and as many of you know, that starts in, in some sense with the story of uh, Dr. John Garang. All right, so uh, John Garang uh, is uh, the leader of the SPLA, the SPLM, uh, this liberation movement. Um, long story short, uh, John Garang is schooled uh, in the United States. He spends considerable time uh, in various parts of the United States and, and becomes very well acquainted with the sort of the cultural curriculum uh, there. He uh, goes back to Sudan uh, to begin, and, and again, long story short, uh, begins this liberation movement. And I think there's a central question herein uh, where uh, he has this idea of if the United States and, uh, and other societies can build a multi-ethnic multicultural, multi-religious, uh, inclusive society, why not in Sudan, right? So he wages this uh, liberation campaign. We'll talk a lot about that uh, and how I think uh, history uh, has gotten some of this wrong and how it looks differently uh, in present day circumstances about his movement. Um, but he finds himself at the end of the Cold War on the wrong side of history, right? And so he decides to uh, uh, come in particular to the United States and try to uh, shore up some new relationships. Um, and he's very effective at doing so. He's known for his kind of legendary char charisma, and so he comes to uh, both to Washington, but also other places in the United States where he, sp you know, so to speak, figuratively speaking, spoke the language. Uh, and he sells uh, South Sudan's really uh, uh, this righteous cause, right? He sells uh, religious persecution to um, church groups and to uh, those constituencies, not only in the United States, but elsewhere in the West. Um, he sells this religious persecution. He sells uh, slavery to the Congressional Black Caucus. He sells human rights to uh, different advocates. And uh, over the course of this period, um, with the help of some uh, friends in the West, uh, he builds this extraordinary constituency, maybe one's not seen since the end of the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, right, and importantly, at least in 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 uh, this is certainly true in, in Norway and in some other places. Um, this book is is focused mo mostly on the United States angle, um, but importantly, he builds relationships uh, also on Capitol Hill. Uh, right, so he's he doesn't have an entry point to the administration yet, and he goes to Capitol Hill and he reaches out to uh, congressional Republicans uh, and Democrats on the right and the left. And really, even today, I th I think it's interesting to to apply this elsewhere because it's a kind of unparalleled uh, constituency that includes members of Congress, that includes the religious right, ultimately the Hollywood left, uh, right? And he builds this constituency for South Sudan's cause um, uh, that, that starts in, in South Sudan, uh, that is very much accelerated uh, during the war in Darfur, uh, and then comes back uh, to South Sudan uh, thereafter. So we'll talk about the effects of that, but that is uh, one of the reasons I think that there was such a strong constituency built in the beginning. Um, 
we'll come back to it later, I hope, but uh, I think there's also a unique environment, uh, a unique environment of where South Sudan fits uh, in, a, in a Western foreign policy context at the sort of nexus of uh, these humanitarian principles and uh, uh, idealism about, uh, about what's possible there and uh, at least in, the, in Washington, a near total lack of national security interest. Right? And I think that space uh, is one of the reasons I go into the book of why this, uh, this huge constituency is built and why it is ultimately uh, subject to some pretty important flaws. Thanks. You know, um, I think, you know, Garang clearly was charismatic. He has played a major, major role. You cannot underestimate his role. But if you look, you know, do the comparison to Norway, the Sudan engagement predates Garang by more than a decade. You know, and, and so there is more to it than that. And you mentioned it a little bit. It's this uh, fascination and it's uh, this geopolitical situation. Africa was their world and so on. So there's, there's more to the story, but I think that for the, um, say the, um, what we're talking about, of course, uh, that what you are describing here can is, I, is Can I, Andre, correct. sorry, we've, we've marooned Johan up here. He was gonna do a few slides for us quick. Just, uh, most of you know this, but for those of you who don't, do you mind hitting that? We'll just give you a sense of the timeline so you know the scope that we're talking about real quickly. This, obviously, Sudan before independence. Um, this is by no means exhaustive. Uh, but but uh, some kind of context for folks that are uh, relatively new to this issue. Uh, this is kind of the scope of what we'll be talking about. You can go to the next one. This is South Sudan at independence. Uh, and we'll leave it there. That usually helps um, folks who are new to this. So thanks, sorry, Andre. Yeah, now you mentioned earlier the, the, the idea of big men. Yeah. And you have many stories, you have many, say, biographies, many portraits of, of people you met along the way. There's almost a remarkable absence of women as you are describing you know, events in South Sudan and also people you encountered on, on your travels. Uh, are women not important here? Uh, wh why is it? Was it a deliberate choice? Or yeah. could you say more about that? Great question. And, and um, I should say first that uh, this was, as much as anything, a learning experience, uh, writing this process. Uh, this process of writing, collaborating others, uh, learning as much about uh, this period, both that I had witnessed, the period that we, you had witnessed, and, and others in the room here, uh, really a learning experience in a lot of ways, how to tell this incredible story, uh, right? Uh, what is the responsibilities involved? Particularly, uh, you will note, uh, two white guys on stage here. What, what are the responsibilities? Why, uh, uh, why is it in the interest of you to tell this story? So there were a lot of difficult choices. Uh, the role of women was one of them. Um, so as Andre alluded, uh, this book is told um, through a lot of characters, right? So big men and every man, and I'll, I'll come back to these characters. Um, there are definitely women uh, in the book. Uh, Rebecca Garang is there, uh, some others along the way, some, uh, some of the ordinary characters that we see these events unfold through are, are women. Um, there, is a, a few, there are fewer women uh, when it comes to the political spectrum. Um, and that is in large part, as I, as I mentioned, uh, because there were so few women, right? They, they, weren't, they weren't absent, but there were uh, few women at these pivotal moments that animate much of the book. Um, I did wrestle with this. I did struggle with this question. Uh, is it my role as an outsider or as a Westerner to insert 
uh, a, a female character to enhance a female character's role more prominently because uh, what we might think is appropriate or right, or, or does it do more justice to tell the story uh, as it is? Uh, and in doing so, you will see uh, the role of women absent uh, at those levels. Um, so you do, uh, just to mention a, a few of the characters, I, I mentioned Dr. John Garang, this charismatic and really lionized figure in South Sudan. Um, we also meet, uh, of course, Salva Kiir uh, in a chapter called The Accidental President, uh, who's thrust into a leadership role at a moment of really existential crisis uh, for South Sudan. Uh, we meet Dr. Riak Mishar. Uh, the chapter is called Rebel with a PhD, um, as you know. <laughs> uh, love him or hate him, everyone has very strong opinions about Riak Mishar. Uh, Barack Obama makes a, a, a cameo. Uh, I think the Crown Prince of Norway makes a cameo. Uh, George Clooney makes a cameo. The Pope makes a cameo. But more importantly to me, uh, I think a bigger chunk of the story is told through uh, ordinary South Sudanese, who I think are too often lost um, uh, in this story, and who I, uh, after working on this for eight or nine years in various roles, went back to South Sudan uh, and shut my mouth <laughs> and opened my ears and brought my notebook and, and listened to a lot of them. And I hope I do them justice, uh, these folks that decided to share their stories with me. So um, we meet a young woman called Ayen, uh, who is a Dinka uh, from north, the northwest corner of South, of South Sudan. And during the long civil war, she is uh, forced to flee uh, abroad. And where does she go? She goes to the north. She goes to Khartoum, like so many others. Um, she makes a life in Khartoum. Uh, she makes friendships, she gets married, she has kids, she uh, has a job. Uh, and after 20 years uh, in the North, she too, uh, just on the eve of independence in 2011, is so excited about the prospect of a new beginning. Right, like so many South Sudanese who were in Norway, in the United States, uh, in Khartoum, elsewhere, uh, the, the idea of a fresh start in South Sudan is so intoxicating, and rightly so. Um, so she sells her home, she sells all of her belongings, uh, she and her husband pack up uh, their six children and I think three additional children who had been orphaned, uh, and uh, they get on a bus and they head south from Khartoum, and they get on another bus and they head south, uh, and they get to rank and they get on a, a barge and they make this incredible journey um, up the river in South Sudan uh, to bring her kids home uh, South Sudanese kids home to a country they've never set foot in, uh, right? So it's a much, in, in my mind, it's a much uh, more real story if you hear it through these characters. Um, we also made a young man named Dwap uh, who takes us inside uh, one of the most sacred places in South Sudan, the cattle camp, uh, right? We meet uh, a man called James, a former banker with one of the banks in South Sudan who, after things come undone, uh, really brings us uh, inside and exposes the level of corruption in South Sudan and helps us understand um, both its scale, uh, but also how it happened. Uh, and I hope you re will wrestle that with, with that in reading it. Um, just to name one more, there's a young woman called Naya Queth, uh, who we meet and, and we revisit throughout the story, uh, who's a young New Era woman, woman who moves to Juba with her husband, uh, and we meet the night the the violence begins in December 15th, 2013, uh, and she is faced with uh, some very stark moral choices and some very difficult uh, circumstances, and we follow through her through the rest of the book. So I, I think it's a better, maybe not a better, it's a different way uh, to access this story. It's a way that I think people can grasp uh, some of these larger themes. Um, and again, I, I hope uh, humbly that I've done, that, done it some justice.
Let me just, uh, I'm not going to say too much about this, but let me just make three brief of, uh, observations on, on the role of women. One, you know, is that the SPLM as a movement had a 25% quota. They didn't honor that, you know, right. and I think that <laughs> was maybe an omen of, of uh, things to come, you know, where they totally disregarded their own status. Uh, the second point is that we, throughout the process, even before you were involved, you know, were pushing for a larger participation of women to, uh, you know, to live up to the expectations of uh, Resolution 1325. Clearly, we failed, and I think it's reason to ask why did we fail, even though we were putting resources into it, investing also a lot of political capital in that. Um, and then um, uh, a third point, you know, when it, it came to, to the women, you know, is that we know from research that uh, the larger meaningful involvement of women you have in peace processes and in the implementation processes, the stronger the chance is that the, it will succeed, that you will maintain the peace after the conclusion of the agreement. So I think there was something here that, uh, again, back to the lessons learned uh, on this road. Well, no. I think just w just to build on that, I think there's le there's lessons learned there, but there's also a larger inherent lesson learned about, in terms of what you're saying, about uh, uh, appreciating, having a, a genuine uh, appreciation for uh, the lack of the the limits of what we can impose from the outside, right? And I think that's yeah. a fundamental theme in this story, and I think it's relevant in that issue as well. Yeah, absolutely, and, and that is a nice segue to my next question because you you um, you talk about you know the role of the uh, international community. You say that you know the uh, it's also a story of the diminishing role of the West in the world order. However, in your book, uh, one place you specifically state that South Sudan would not have become a state if it had not been for the United States. I, I would agree with that, but it's also to contradict what you're saying. Second, you know, we have the Troika, and that's part of the international engagement. Uh, you don't talk about the Troika at all. Now, from a Norwegian perspective, and having been, you know, a serving member of the Troika and having invested countless hours you, in You're going to ask about it. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, countless hours you know, inside the Troika and seen it as a as a very in important instrument. In fact, I think the Troika came with a statement even today. So it's one of the la most lasting yep. and successful um, inventions of this Sudan peace process. So then uh, two, qu two, two questions, you know. Are you quite f fair to your, you know, you, is mm. your assessment quite fair when you say that the, the, um, the West um, is uh, credited with a, a too large role in this process? And also say a little bit about the Troika from a US perspective. Sure. Um, first, uh, you will notice right up front on the book that uh, the role is of the West is a sub-theme that runs throughout. Right? I, I mentioned uh, this is secondly uh, a book about uh, appreciating what both uh, trying to learn the lessons from what, what can be done to help uh, from the outside. And, and uh, in this case, I think uh, a story of, of when we get too close and, and those things become blurred. Uh, those lines become blurred, and as Princeton Lyman uh, says in the book, um, a great U.S. diplomat um, who was involved in this process and to whom the book is dedicated, um, we mistook uh, interests for friendships, right? And I think that's uh, an important part here. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave this Troika question for a second. There's a poignant quote um, that opens chapter 22 of the book. Uh, that introduces this chapter called Love Lost, right? And this is really about uh, lost love between, and the relationship between uh, the SPLM and the West, both the United States and others. Um, 
quote, you can become close to someone, but still be a tough friend. And we were never a, a tough friend. Uh, now, that doesn't do it justice, but I think it does um, capture the general point. So, uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, this is a South Sudanese story. The fate belongs uh, to the South Sudanese. But I think having adopted the underdog's cause, uh, having leaned on the scales, uh, and having in some ways uh, moved on too soon, I, I do think the role of the West warrants critical reflection, right? And so uh, I do uh, dig pretty deep into this issue, uh, both in South Sudan and in Darfur, uh, looking at governments, looking at diplomats, looking at activism, uh, looking at uh, senators, looking at church groups, uh, trying to understand um, uh, the nature and the, and the motivations of this. And first and foremost, uh, this is not easy. <laughs> these, are, these are difficult gray areas. Um, policymakers from the West are, are faced with stark difficult choices, often choosing the least worst option. So it's by no means easy, and I would say that first and foremost. Um, secondly, uh, you know, the South Sudanese were presented with uh, an extraordinary uh, opportunity uh, and had a, a vast reservoir of international goodwill, um, as you're alluding to. I think over time, and, and we can dive more into this uh, with people uh, if they want, uh, you see these constituencies uh, become very close to the SPLM, uh, and ultimately too close. And so this movement that uh, in many ways, uh, despite its, uh, how it is celebrated at independent, independence, it lacks a really meaningful connection with its own people, right? Even when you compare it to other rebel movements in the region, it lacks a really meaningful connection uh, with its own people. And over time, it becomes uh, more and more attached uh, to a constituency of outsiders, uh, of foreigners who are too willing to back them at any price. Right, and so this begins in South Sudan, I think I would argue with a somewhat simplified narrative. A simplified narrative about the war itself. Uh, uh, that, that gets worse in my opinion uh, when we go to the Darfur years uh, in a way that um, the, the, the regime in Khartoum is, is given black hats uh, and those in the south are given white hats. Right? And, and after Darfur and after these guys are in Khartoum are now genocidiers, uh, uh, the attention turns back to South Sudan and those hats get even whiter. Right? And, and people are too close to this uh, and, un, and, and too willing to back them at any price and, and um, unready, I think, to uh, either acknowledge or confront uh, the very real problems, the very real uh, uh, decay the very real betrayal of the ideals for which the SPLM fought that was happening inside South Sudan in the lead up to 2011. I think there are very good reasons why that happened, uh, and I hope uh, I, I do some justice in explaining them in the book. Um, but I think that comes, uh, I, I think that comes ripe in the end, and we see it uh, contribute uh, both in a positive way to ending South Sudan's or Sudan civil war and ensuring uh, independence, which was no small feat. Um, but also, I think, in the, in the really rot and decay that happens inside the SPLM, both before 2011 uh, and after. Hugh, you know, can we stop there and then move to the Troika a little bit later? Because I oh, have a comment sorry. on this. Uh, <laughs> we, you know, uh, this too close, this is something we hear a lot, you know, and of course I've been part of that. And, and I'm, I think this is something that will be debated by historians, you know, as long as there's an interest in Sudan and, and South Sudan. Now, if you look at the people that you say we're too close, well, Susan Rice. 
she's a very, very professional politician. She's a very hard-nosed analyst, uh, analyst. She's not somebody that anybody takes for a ride. Was she too close? Or was there something else going on as well? The, back to my earlier question, what was it about Sudan? What was it about this conflict that maybe made some people lose their bearings or their, you know, their normally good judgment, or didn't they? You know, the, we had people on our side, you know, who were the most experienced diplomats around. Tom Ralston is one. Was he too close? I don't think so. You know, we, for our side, you know, had our toughest meetings were with the South Sudanese. It was not with the government in Khartoum. Uh, but it didn't you know, mean that we were able to sway them. I think part of the reason that, you know, they, in a sense, got away with it in, in inverted commas was that they uh, were financially independent because of the oil. And so that, that was a, a part of the story. You would, you, and this is one of the strengths of the book. You're very honest about the, say, drivers of corruption and, and how it uh, affected you know, uh, politics in South Sudan. But, but uh, my point now is just, I think this is it's a difficult question. We'll Very never have the final answer to it, you know, but I think uh, you, you, there are more to it, I think, than, than what you're saying. But now, on to the Troika. Well, you're not going to give me a chance to respond to that? No, no, no. That we was, have, we that have to move on. That was a convenient moderator. Uh. That's, my, that's my privilege, <laughs> and as you already uh, pointed out, well, Andrew will know because he's read the book that uh, obviously we can only cover so much ground in a, a few minutes up here versus the uh, the 400 pages here in. But uh, uh, if you're interested in this question, I, I encourage you to dive in because a, a good half of the book wrestles with this question, uh, right? And I think uh, we have to understand that both from a Western perspective, but also I think uh, it requires an understanding of the SPLM that I think was lacking during uh, was either lacking or, or uh, not accessible to uh, the wide constituency of folks who backed this cause, right? That this was about North versus South, it was about uh, Arabs versus Blacks, it was about Muslims versus Christians, and, and lost uh, in this, in this uh, simplified narrative that got so many people involved uh, are the nuances, are the, is the complexity, is the difficulties of what was happening both inside South Sudan and inside the movement, right? So uh, I, d I wouldn't pick out any individuals. I, d I don't, there, there's no, uh, finger pointing in this book. Uh, it's an attempt to wrestle with uh, these things and try to learn from them. How can we understand this so uh, we get better uh, in terms of what we can do from the outside, whether it's in Venezuela or in Syria or anywhere else? And I put myself in that category as well. Um, so just one other point on the, on the SPLM, because to give you some context before you get to the Western question, we, you have to start with the SPLM. And for me, uh, a proper political autopsy and this book is one part political autopsy, um, doesn't begin in 2013 uh, when the war began. It doesn't begin in 2011 at independence, uh, nor does it begin at 2005 uh, in the, during the peace process that you were involved in. You have to go back much, much, much further and try to understand, the, I think, the character uh, and the ethos of the movement that uh, John Garang built. So a, a few answers I'll preview here uh, that emerge in the book. Uh, one is that, the ethos of the movement. So uh, I, I think perhaps overlearning the lessons uh, of South Sudan's rebel movement, pa rebel movement's past, John Garang uh, has an iron fist on this movement, right? Uh, his, his detractors inside the movement say he carries it in a briefcase and he's an authoritarian, right? And that is not a narrative uh, that's known to the, to the broad masses that were supportive, right? John Garang was the face of this. Uh, but in fact, he built a movement that was deeply, deeply undemocratic, right? And no one uh, really wanted to confront that uh, and tell his 
uh, unfortunate and untimely death in 2005. Uh, so that's one, uh, right? There's a quote in the book where uh, somebody says, you know, democracy does not just uh, fall from the heavens, it, you know, uh, and in many ways uh, that movement died with John Garang. And so uh, one is the ethos of the movement. Uh, two, as I've mentioned, is this lack of a meaningful connection with their own people. Uh, instead of providing food and, and other things, uh, to I'm, I'm simplifying here, but instead of serving their people, building schools, education systems, uh, trying to uh, fight on behalf of the people, as, as many folks know in this room, the SPLA was very often predatory, very often preying on its own uh, citizens, very often taking food that were meant for them, provided by the international community and others, right? So uh, I think that some of those things are becoming uh, clearer to a wider group of constituents uh, that followed this, right? The wider group of people that was engaged. So. Um, I think that's important to understand. The third thing that emerges in the book, and, and this isn't me sort of sitting on a hill and pontificating, right? I went back to South Sudan. Uh, I, I traveled and saw lots of current and former SPLM leaders, uh, and I saw lots of ordinary citizens, many who were champions of the SPLM and many who reviled the SPLM and, and asked them this question, why did they fail? And these are the answers that emerge, right? So the, the third one I'll mention here in previewing them is party factionalism. So I mentioned John Garang's uh, death in 2005 in a helicopter crash, uh, uh, very unfortunately, at this critical moment. Um, and what many don't see thereafter, uh, between 2005 up to independence, up to the civil war in South Sudan's undoing in 2013, is a vicious, vicious struggle for power inside the SPLM, right? a vicious struggle for power, largely unseen uh, to the outside or ignored, right? Um, and one which corrodes uh, both the party and the state that the party is building from the inside out at this critical moment uh, when South Sudan, if it is to have any chance to succeed, needs all hands on deck. Troika. Troika. You moved it first, so I get to move it the second time. Um, I... Uh, the role of the Troika is very important in, in considering Western diplomatic engagement from the outside starting uh, during the CPA process, uh, and I think probably arguably at its high point uh, during that process, though it continued and was relevant uh, thereafter. In short, <laughs> uh, the reason it's not dealt with more in this book is one of those hard choices about what, what can you include in 400 pages uh, to try and tell a story uh, and not be uh, such a nerdy foreign policy book that folks fall asleep, right? And, and, and it, you have to pick an audience. So uh, I, uh, it, it's, it's limited mention here is not a reflection of its importance. It's a reflection of uh, difficult choices in trying to tell a story. Um, I also was a, as a member and a participant in the Troika, and I think uh, historically people look at this differently, right? There was a view that um, uh, D during the CPA process that uh, the British, the third member of the Troika in some sense had a, a good relationship with the North and the Norwegians, uh, given their long uh, investments and relationships, had a, a good relationship with the South uh, and this would help to balance uh, the approach uh, you know, with both sides, that each party uh, could pull strings and could apply, apply pressure and incentives and use those relationships, and I, which I think w worked very effectively. Uh, right, it, it's still continuing today. Um, I wonder if it has the same 
oomph as it did then. Um, I'd, I'd welcome your own, own thinking on this. Uh, I think the nature of uh, politics has changed. I think the nature of uh, the governments in each of those has played, changed, and by extension, uh, their engagement in South Sudan. Uh, it's probably no secret to anyone following South Sudan that, uh, for example, the United States, who had this uh, huge historical uh, engagement, uh, is not involved. And that is partly due to the Trump administration uh, part, um, but it's also uh, a, a larger reality in that this, this influence and this engagement or interest began to wane uh, uh, really after 2011 and it, and it disappears uh, right quick after 2013, um, right? Success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. Nobody wanted to be attached to a losing cause, right? So I think the fact of South Sudan's righteous cause in the beginning, a, a clear goal, uh, these things helped motivate and helped animate uh, what I think, I agree, was a successful diplomatic tool. Um, I think it looks differently now. Many of these issues, of course, we can come back to in the Q&A afterwards, and we are, in a sense, need to, to nearing the end of our di dialogue because we need to give uh, the audience uh, time for to ask questions, uh, and we had a little bit late start, so I will start, you know, uh, concluding now. Um, towards the end of the book, you know, you uh, talk about say, the failures of execution by our side, and one of the failures has to do with, um, you know, we didn't get the, the, the state building aspect right, and and you are able to, uh, but you're also able to end on a quite a, a positive note something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is not discussed in your book, but I think it's, it's quite critical as we're looking to the future, is the, say the, the lasting e effect of trauma on, on politics in, in South Sudan and, and how we, do they deal with that? How do we deal with that as we go forward? So two questions, just to, to wind, it, uh, wind it up. You know, uh, first, you know, how do you think this issue of this extremely brutal civil war yeah. You know um, the trauma that that has created, how that impacts on possibilities of the future, and despite all your knowledge, despite all the, the tragedy that you so well describe in the book, you still end up with a fairly positive conclusion. Yeah. Um, so please. So I do touch on the role of trauma a bit in the book, in, in part in in interviewing um, uh, folks that endured some of the worst of the violence in in 2013 and went went back to South Sudan and went to many of the refugee camps to talk with South Sudanese. And uh, as someone who appreciated those issues from the outside but was not an expert, uh, I engaged uh, folks who were working specifically in this, right? And, and you probably know some of them, uh, NGOs who specialize in trauma counseling and trauma support, and which was uh, really critical for me to even uh, responsibly engage uh, folks who uh, wanted to tell their stories but needed a, a space to do it in. So I, I think it's fortunately becoming a lot bigger part of the narrative in South Sudan. There are also some uh, South Sudanese groups who have really uh, are championing this issue. I think it's uh, central to this conversation. Um, I wonder if that it has come late in South Sudan's story, right? Or, or uh, including in our engagement there. And that is because um, this is not a sexy answer, but I often get asked about what do we do now? Uh, and, and, and how does this get fixed? Um, I think I would argue that one of the most important ingredients in South Sudan's ultimate success, and I am optimistic, but it depends on your time horizon, um, I think one of the most important ingredients is generational change. And that's uh, not easy, and that doesn't fit into our 
policy proposals and our donor cycles and all these things, but this is a theme in the book. I think um, I am optimistic, but it depends on your readiness to zoom out and think about this not in six or 12 month terms or in one or three year terms, but in 10, 15, 20 year terms. Um, I think that's how uh, we should start thinking about this. I think it's a more responsible way to engage and a more responsible way to orient what we can do from the outside to help. So, you know, it sounds very grim of late. You all know this, the story is uh, uh, not a good news story right now and it hasn't been for some time and it may not be for a while. Um, I am optimistic. Uh, but as I mentioned, it depends on your time horizon, right? Um, it wasn't so long ago <laughs> that my own country uh, fought a vicious, devastating civil war over economy, identity, and the nature of our state, right? And that's, that's, not, a, that's not an apology for South Sudan or, or what happened or the leadership. I, I do think it is an important context uh, when too often uh, those on the outside show up with clipboards and checklists ready to uh, mark off the benchmarks of a, of a modern liberal democracy, right? So I think that uh, perspective uh, is important. Um, I'm also optimistic um, uh, for another reason. Uh, many of you will know a lot of the uh, young people, 20s, 30s, into their early 40s now in South Sudan, uh, who were expelled during the Civil War, who were driven abroad, um, many of whom, uh, uh, there's a silver lining therein that many of those folks got an education uh, that they never would have got back in South Sudan, uh, and they grew up alongside others from different ethnic communities, right? Whether this is in Kenya or Uganda or Ethiopia or further afield, um, a lot of them came back to South Sudan ahead of independence. A lot have come back since, uh, and they're faced with uh, very difficult choices, but they have a very different outlook about South Sudan, about who they are, about their future, right? This is not cliche. I genuinely mean this. Um, if you've worked in South Sudan, you've met some of these people, right? Young men and women all over the country who uh, are want to do something different, who want to take their country forward, who have the skills and the education uh, and the relationships to do so, but they are knocking against this generational ceiling, right? And it's a very difficult position. So I'll, I'll tell a, a little story here to give you more of a sense. Again, most of this book is told through characters. Um, I, on my first trip to South Sudan, uh, flew up and, and met a young man called Kong, um, I think in Malakal, uh, uh, you know, 10, 11 years ago. And um, he was a, a young man at the time working like most young people did in an NGO or for the UN. Uh, and, and a colleague of mine said, you really should meet this kid. And so I did, and that night we sat uh, late into the night and he was talking politics and economics and reconciliation and trauma and trauma that at this time uh, and social cohesion. And he had all sorts of ideas about what his country or what his community could do uh, at the time uh, to build, to, to ready itself for independence, right? I asked him, hey, why don't you run for office? Why don't you run for, how, how can you make a difference? And he sort of uh, smiled and laughed and reserved to himself and, and acknowledged that um, uh, he couldn't do so yet, right? The liberation class, the liberation generation that had uh, came to power uh, and uh, assumed, uh, uh, assumed a sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, that they were the rightful heirs to this place and it belonged to them, uh, couldn't be displaced and so he had to wait. Uh, I went back and saw Kong uh, in 2017, right, after the Civil War and I, uh, went to Juba and I hopped on a plane and, uh, and another plane and went up to a place called Wat, 
uh, which surely some of you will know, but deep in the heart of New Era country in South Sudan, because uh, I, I knew Kong had sort of come of age in the interim. He'd had a lot of experience. He was a county commissioner, uh, and that he would have uh, a, a good idea of where his country had been and where it, had, where it was going, right? And, and so I went up and I, and I sat with Kong for two days. Uh, what a luxury to drop in on, on Kong, who's trying to m make it work in his, in his home region. Um, and we have a really difficult conversation, and it's about him and his own, uh, his own uh, struggles, his own maturation, his own young family, uh, and his efforts to try and make it work uh, again, and now uh, not at the opportunity of independence, but trying to pick up the pieces in the wake of this devastating, uh, shredded society. Um, Kong, again, has uh, very n real ideas about um, how to make a difference, but he is, uh, he faces a really difficult choice. Do I stay and try to make it work with these guys who are still in power, who are still thinking the same way, who aren't listening to the ground? Uh, do I try and, and make a difference? What is my moral obligation here? Or do I say to hell with it? I'm picking up and I'm going back and I have opportunities. I can go to Ethiopia or I can maybe come to Norway or, or elsewhere and, and I'll come back when these guys are gone. Right? And so Kong wrestles with this choice and it's kind of the most personal chapter in the book. He, he and I uh, wrestle with this, but um, you know, I, I want him to stay. <laughs> Easy for me to say. Um, but Kong says, uh, he, he sort of says, how do we do this? How do we make a difference? Young people of, of South Sudan, he, he gets into this mode where he's, he's sort of talking to his peers, um, but he wants to be connected to them. He knows that there are others like him who got educations, who think differently, that are placed all across South Sudan. They are disconnected by the war, right? Um, I have hope for South Sudan in the long term, uh, in the long term, uh, but it's because of young men and women uh, like Kong. Uh, so I think part of this is related to your larger question about what, what we all can do, what we can understand, uh, both about where we've been and about how we can help going forward. Uh, I would strongly suggest um, we think very seriously about investing in the 30-somethings. Thank you. Uh, I think this uh, concludes our dialogue here, and uh, we'll be very happy to answer, or SAC will be very uh, happy to answer questions from the audience. Uh, when you make a question, uh, please say who you are, maybe what your background was, if you have a particular South Sudan background, and, and we have about half an hour for questions and comments. Hello, thank you so much, Zach. My name is Daniela. I am a researcher at MF, uh, uh, Norwegian School for Theology, Religion, and Society. I lived in Juba from 2009 to 2011, the same time as Zach. So this is not the first time I meet the author. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I, I wrote my PhD on uh, uh, the people-to-people -people peacemaking process in South Sudan, and I'm writing my postdoc on uh, um, theological and religious resources to address trauma in South Sudan. I can get uh, away from South Sudan. Um, a little comment about women and where to find women. I think that you find women when you, when you look in the right place. Mm -hmm. And it's not a critique. I haven't read your book and I'm looking forward to meet the women you have uh, talked about. But there is a story of women's participation in peace work and there is a story of, of active, intense participation of women in the people-to-people -people peacemaking process, which prepared the ground to the Bachakos um, uh, process and, and eventually the CPA. So we find women when we look in the right place. Uh, and the other comment is about trauma, because you say 
if I understood right the, 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 the conversation between the two of you, that uh, um, maybe we are working, we are, we are starting late with our work on trauma. But I think that there is an issue of the language of trauma is a new language, but I don't think that addressing trauma is something new in South Sudan. Because traditional mechanisms of conflict resolution have contained elements of dealing with trauma, which has not been called in these terms. So the whole restorative justice mechanism has functioned because it contains important elements of dealing with trauma. So I think that, uh, not, not, I don't only think, I mean, uh, this is what the, the, the church leaders I've been interviewing so far are telling me, that uh, uh, to work with trauma is, is very much a matter of uh, uh, working again with traditional mechanisms of conflict resolution that do deal with trauma and, and uh, addressing it in a constructive way. Yeah, my name is Holle uh, Hansen. I would like to, do, to expand a little on, on um, what do we do now. Uh, and let me take as a starting point a few observations. There are two million or more South Sudanese, uh, as, you know, they are refugees in neighboring countries. They have a, a very, very simple, very, very hard life. They have very little, if any, political encouragement with regard to the future. There is a vast potential for ordinary education, basic education, but also for political democratic education about what can be their role in the future. That is totally neglected at present. There are thousands of eminent leaders or potential leaders in diaspora. Some of them, they live under very, very poor material conditions. I know some of them. And some of them are even afraid of moving freely, even in London. Not because of the British, because, but because of hired agents who are paid to take them. And we let it happen. So there are, there are so many measures that could be undertaken so many projects and so many programs to help those to whom the future of South Sudan belong to be part of the reconstruction. In addition to that, of course, there are possibilities inside, even though they are limited, very limited indeed. But there, are, there is a vast political potential to be exploited, which is totally neglected by Norway by the United States, by the friends of the peoples of South Sudan, while Russia, China, the Arab states and so on come in to exploit the riches of nature. Thank you. I think we'll move on. Any question, maybe? Geir Monsernsen. Uh, I, I worked with uh, Sudan issues uh, early um, 2001-2003. I, I would believe that the peace process started seriously around 2000-2001, and especially 2002, where the major issues were really solved. The religious issues was, was of course, 
very, very important for both sides, both for Khartoum and, um, and Yuba. And it was agreed that uh, the North could, would continue as Muslim and uh, Christians in the, in, the, in the South. And then we had the uh, division of the wealth. Uh, and of course, then we had a more detailed discussions up to 2005. But I think the major issues were handled in 2002. And uh, Andre was a very important part of these discussions in, in Machakos. Um, I also think that the US had a very important role, of course, in 2001 to, uh, and uh, we had the, uh, the uh, Senator Danford engagements with his tests the slavery and, uh, and the Nuba Mountains issues, which were, I think, the research in Nuba Mountains were very positive and fruitful. And, uh, and uh, I think the conclusion from Danford's activities, tests, was that one could continue the work related to the uh, peace process. Another reflection in your book, I have read the book, um, is that we, we know that the UK, they, uh, they, uh, they had discussions whether the country should be divided at an early stage, whether the South should be linked up to Africa, the real black Africa in the South, because as we all know, it was very different from, uh, from the Arab parts in, in the North linked up to Egypt. But for some reason, different reasons, um, there were no um, division. What do you think? Would it have been an advantage that uh, the South had got some closer cooperation with the countries the South and West? Because most of the problems in, in Sudan has been based on ethnic issues, it seems to me. And um, there we there we did many mistakes since, as you have indicated, Garang was a very hard leader and did not allow, I would believe, uh, representatives from many other ethnic groups into the back rooms. Uh, Andrew also raised the issue of, uh, of um, to which extent the Troika were active. I think it was very active, especially in the, uh, the uh, 2002 negotiations uh, together with uh, Zumbevo and, um, and um, one got results. As you said, um, the British, they leaned to, uh, to the Arab side perhaps. I think Norway was uh, rather neutral. Though our missionaries, of course, from the 1880s, 90s had uh, their special interests. Uh, another issue which do not do not touch upon is the role of the NGOs. They have been very active. Billions of dollars have been spent. Was that useful or not useful? Was it helpful? Did they, uh, you know, <laughs> did, did the, uh, the, uh, the war continue far too long because of the assistance from, from uh, Western countries based on humanitarian issues mainly? Thank you very much. My name is uh, Karen Christofferson. I work for Norwegian People's Aid. And I also spent uh, a couple of years in Juba in 2014 to 16 for UN OCHA. Um, you mentioned that the relationship 
for the American interests, the political interest in in, um, in South Sudan has has changed, and the height of the troika was maybe uh, around the CPA. Um, the New York Times, I think, posted yesterday yesterday an article about uh, Juba paying million millions of dollars to um, <laughs> a lobby firm um, to yeah. try to better an American-based lobbyist um, firm to better those relationships um, in several areas. Could you say something about sort of the prospects of the of the American South Sudan relationship and yeah, um, sure. that going forward? Thank uh, you. If it's okay, maybe I'll start in reverse order. Um, uh, so remind me to come back to the Rannenberger thing. He's the ambassador that was implicated in this uh, $3.7 million lobby deal, which, by the way, was not the first one. Um, let me come back to that. Just to give you a sense of, of how the relationship and where it began to change, there's a chapter in the book called The Waldorf Astoria. Right. So Salva Kiir, uh, uh has met President George W. Bush uh, several times, three or four times, I think, before his country is even a country. Right? That is a lot of face time for any foreign leader in the Oval Office, uh, not least one who's only the head of a liberation movement. Right? Uh, he has not yet met, uh, by the time of this story in August of 2011, just on the, in the wake of independence, he has not yet met President Barack Obama, right? who came to this later uh, but in fact invested uh, quite a bit of political capital in, in safeguarding the referendum together with other partners and, and ensuring its outcome, right? Uh, in advance of that meeting, they're going to meet in New York City at the famed Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which, if you don't know it, is the kind of seat of American government once a year during the UN General Assembly. Um, so they, uh, in advance of that meeting, just for some context, uh, and then I'll get back to the story, uh, when South Sudan... Uh, secedes from Sudan in 2011, it opts out of uh, what some co would call the S Sudan problem, right? It doesn't fundamentally change that problem. And so those in the West uh, and, and in the East and other parts, as well as uh, many members of the SPLA of the former rebellion, are, are left behind in an unreformed Sudan, right? Um, as some of you know very well, uh, those in the South were not ready to abandon their former brothers in arms, right? And so after independence, after North and South separate through this incredible process of negotiation and incredibly messy uh, kind of divorce that's detailed in the book as well, um, the South Sudanese are not ready to cut off uh, these, these folks in the North, understandably, who are still fighting for their own liberation, who are still fighting for their own reform, right? But it presents a very serious problem. It presents a very serious problem. These weapons are now going across an international boundary uh, at a time of really heightened tensions, right? So in advance of this meeting in New York City with President Obama, American diplomats meet with the South Sudanese. They meet with them a couple times, and they tell them, look, we understand the problem of your former comrades left in the north. Uh, we know that you're sending weapons. We have satellite imagery. Uh, uh, we can address this issue. Uh, please don't lie to the president. Right? I was in the region at the time, many of you will know, was the worst kept secret in the region these weapons were going across, and Obama has satellite imagery. They plead with the South Sudanese, who they've just helped uh, deliver independence, right? who have invested so much over, over uh, uh, the course of 20, 25 years in, in securing this outcome, who, who helped prevent, first stop, help stop a war and then prevent a new one. Uh, this is the man he's going to meet who helped finally secure his independence. They say, please don't lie to the president. Please tell Salva Kiir, do not lie to the president. You know where this is going. 
So they go up to one of the higher floors in a conference room in the Waldorf Astoria, and there are delegations from two sides, and they meet, and pleasantries are exchanged, uh, and uh, there is mostly talk about the future and, and congratulations about becoming the world's newest state. The map of the world has been redrawn, right? Uh, uh, and at the end of the meeting, Obama saves this, saves this issue. And he says, you know, to President Keir, uh, we understand that there are weapons going across the border. You're sending weapons across the border. Uh, uh, this has got to stop. This is a question of sovereignty. This could inflame tensions, uh, you know, and, and we've got proof. All eyes in the room turn to Salva Kiir and his big black cowboy hat, and he's looking down, and there's a really pregnant pause. And Salva Kiir looks up and says, uh, Mr. Obama, uh, if your satellites are telling you that we are sending weapons across the border, you should probably check on your satellites. Right? And... Princeton Lyman and some of the other diplomats in the room nearly fall off their chairs, right? This is, this is, this is, this is Obama's first meeting with President Keir, uh, and he lies to his face. And that really, I think, is a sign is a, and is an example in the book of where uh, this relationship begins to change very quickly uh, and where uh, people that have been very close for a long time uh, really came up close and personal with how, uh, as Princeton said, interests had been mistaken for friendships. Um, so. Uh, I think it begins to change uh, very quickly uh, there. There isn't, uh, the love is, is sort of lost and the relationships become more difficult and then uh, I uh, come in to uh, join the US government as one part of a much bigger machine and, and the relationship gets uh, decidedly worse in 2013, uh, right when uh, the war begins. There's a, there's a, a narrative from the government about a coup d'etat uh, and we uh, and others from Norway and the Troika said, uh, we're not buying it. Right, the relationship begins to deteriorate there. So it's really an extraordinary story uh, of how close uh, these countries uh, had been and how far apart uh, they are today. That's a long way of answering your question. I don't think uh, if there were uh, greater American involvement, uh, greater Western involvement, I don't think if there were um, real investment from this administration or from Congress or from others uh, in this space right now, trying to do some of the things uh, you're talking about, trying to find solutions, trying to be actively involved. I don't think there would be this space for this kind of contract to happen. Right. So for those of you who don't know, there was a, a reportedly, I haven't confirmed, $3.7 million contract from the government of South Sudan um, to uh, some Americans. Uh, including an American who worked on the peace process and who was involved uh, in the South Sudan peace process, right, to uh, deliver outcomes for them in Washington, to sell access to the Trump administration, to uh, influence opinion, and above all, most egregiously, to, to attempt to block the, the establishment of a hybrid court, uh, you know, which is ultimately about seeking justice for what happened. So it's pretty outrageous. Um, I can tell you it isn't the first time. Uh, various elements in the South Sudanese government have sought uh, relationships with uh, influence peddlers in Washington, uh, right, often who um, play on the fact that people don't understand how Washington works and they're, they're able to sell a bill of goods that is bigger than they'll ever be able to deliver on, right? So um, I think that is, I think uh, Ambassador Rannenberger and others would have a much harder time and would have thought twice about doing that had there been a greater American engagement. So I think it begins to wane. Uh, when I mentioned uh, this is a good news story gone bad after 2011, uh, I think it begins to wane thereafter. I think it wanes uh, with, in some sense, uh, when you have President Obama, who is more skeptical 
uh, about the SPLM and its leadership uh, from the outset, uh, right? And I think it gets um, decidedly worse uh, during a Trump administration in which, uh, you know, it's no secret this administration has made clear what it uh, is invested in and engaged in and what it doesn't care about at all. So um, I very much doubt uh, there'll be a surge in, in U.S. Uh, engagement going forward um, in any time soon. Um, we, we only have 10 minutes left. Okay, you had a sorry. question about the NGOs there, and then we have two questions from here. Yeah, and one on our comment on trauma. Um, uh, I do, I think, and, and maybe it didn't come through clearly, but we can talk about it uh, after, I think, address the question of NGOs, but I, I address it in the wider context of NGOs, Western governments, the United Nations providing support, right? And there's uh, quite a bit, a bit in in the book and in the epilogue trying to wrestle with this and, and did this help or, or did this hurt, right? And, and obviously it's providing uh, really important life-saving support, uh, but in a place uh, that ultimately comes into existence uh, in a very inorganic way, right? There, there are real questions of sovereignty uh, uh, that are warped, uh, very much warped uh, in the lead up to South Sudan's independence because of the relationship between um, a really fractured society without institutions and a huge, huge um, uh, international presence, UN, NGOs, and otherwise. So um, I, 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 I'll save our time here. I, I do try to wrestle with this question in the book. Obviously, those are, uh, are good intentions. I think the question is, uh, how do we right-size that? How do we right-size uh, expectations, right? I don't think, and uh, sorry to, sorry to co-opt the time here, um, one question I usually get, and so I want to address here in this context, is was independence a mistake, right? Was ind independence a mistake? Many people in the wake of the Civil War, there were gotcha accounts from journalists who said, ah, see, uh, this, was, this was all a troika and a Western uh, mistake. Uh, you know, in South Sudan should have never been independent. I don't think that's right. I disagree. Um, I think South Sudan had uh, its cause for independence was justified. Um, I don't think it was inherently a mistake. Uh, I think the more pertinent critiques are those of expectations uh, and of execution. And, and in that, uh, I'm, I'm struggling because I want to go in detail here, but uh, I do deal with that in the question of state formation and, and this outside role played by uh, NGOs and others. Uh, I think the, the pertinent critiques are of expectation and execution. Again, um, I hope in this book you will find it not pointing fingers, but an attempt to honestly wrestle with those questions such that we can do better uh, going forward. We have so many more characters to talk about. Um, I'm All these Tannis. expert questions. Um, I, I haven't read your book, of course, and I don't know if you touched uh, upon this, but you're talking about uh, a good story went wrong. Well, is it really a good story? From our points of view, we see it as everything has sort of gone wrong for the population as such. They have suffered more than ever, more than even under the war. And things are not okay. Absolutely not. The frustrations are there with the diaspora. The frustrations are there with the young generation, as you're saying. And also with all those thousands of young people who had no chance for education, who were staying inside where there is no future for them. Um, there is no trust left. So what to me seems like the biggest problem is that what we see as um, 
a failure and a, a big problem is definitely not a big problem for Salve Kirina's leadership. What about the lack of will? There's no intention of giving away his power. As long as he can sit there with his guys, he's happy. And he's willing to do anything to keep it like that. I don't know if you touch upon this lack of will to let a young generation get a chance to, to give some power to other, uh, other uh, groups. Uh, you understand my question, yeah. I'm sure. Let me, let me take that real quick, is that okay with yeah, you? Uh, we, we are really getting very close to the end. Okay, uh, I'll be brief. It is addressed in the book. Um, I wanna say two things about this. Don't let me forget the second. Um, yeah, there's a story here, uh, I, I think, which is about Salvakir and the people around him, but not only about them. It's also about React Mishar. It's also about the 30 men atop the SPLM uh, political bureau. There are one or two women there, but uh, it's, it's about that whole tranche, and it's about a wider uh, section of, of the SPLM elite, right, who I, I talk about, and I'm not doing it justice here, but I, I hope I, I, I do in the book, uh, how these guys became, as one African colleague of theirs mentioned, a diaspora elite, right? Whose relationships and orientation and education and children and money are outside of South Sudan, right? So when they come to the peace table uh, uh, in 2014 and 2015 uh, and we sit down with them, more than once we had South Sudanese uh, shout at us, if you want peace, then you give us this. If you want peace, right? Uh, so these are clearly people who are disconnected, who remain disconnected, who th for which the consequences of continued war, continuing suffering, are not felt by them, are not felt by their families, are felt by others back in South Sudan. Again, I don't think that's a product of 2013. I think that is a product of an SPLM and a movement uh, that uh, we did not look hard enough at, seriously enough, in terms of its structure, its character, uh, despite its righteous cause, right? Um, secondly, uh, this, how, this sometimes happens in the question and answer. These are hard questions, and it is a, a bad news story. I, I don't want to uh, skip the good news story of this. I, it was absolutely a good news story, right? Uh, there were very real concerns. There were very real red flags. There was very real suffering during the process. But I hope uh, you will wrestle with and engage and, and, and uh, enjoy some of the uh, characters in the book who who animate this story up to that point, right? Some very positive, uh, very funny, very uh, human pieces of this story, and I, I don't want those to get lost in it, because I do think it's, uh, we're inclined to think only about the ending. I do think to understand how we got here, you gotta understand that too. Sorry, Oystein. Yes. yes, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Oystein Rolandsen from the Peace uh, Research Institute in Oslo. Um, thank you very much for a very engaging and uh, interesting uh, discussion. Uh, there is a lot to uh, <laughs> the question here, perhaps, but um, in the interest of time, I will try to uh, be brief. Uh, so, some of my questions have been answered uh, already, but uh, maybe one observation that is quite interesting. I haven't had opportunity to read the book, unfortunately, uh, but uh, it appears to me that uh, you're saying that the book is addressed to an American audience and that you had to make some choices uh, in the story that you make. And that is quite, uh, uh, I think that can be very educational for Norwegians to read this. 
uh, because, of course, in Norway, the story is that it was Norway that brought independence to South Sudan. Right. Uh, so then to read a story about South Sudan's independence. When Norway I switched out figures, some chapters before yeah, I got here. Yeah. That, that, I think that can be quite an interesting uh, absolutely, exercise. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, that, that, that aside, um, I was going to, uh, from, I, I mean, there's obviously a lot more depth in your book. But from what I heard that you were saying, it seemed like you were kind of moving along very familiar tracks. That, um, uh, yes, um, uh, some naive foreign friends helped South Sudan to become independent. Uh, and then there was a clash of personalities between uh, Riek Machar and John Garang, and a civil war started, and because of their egotistical uh, um, uh, politics, uh, they refused to bring peace uh, to South Sudan. Um, and to, to me, that is a story I heard many times. Uh, so somehow I was very happy to hear that uh, at least you were not going into that uh, uh, thing that, oh, we should never have let South Sudan become independent. Uh, so that was a relief to me, uh, <laughs> that uh, you were stay say, that you, uh, saying that, uh, okay, yeah, uh, this was actually a just cause for independence. That, that of course, can be debated. But uh, I guess my chief question here is, <laughs> uh, one, in what ways do you deviate from this kind of Reader's Digest uh, um, media story about both how South Sudan became independent and uh, about the Civil War? Uh, and secondly, uh, then also, uh, do you think that South, uh, that the U.S. Uh, could have made a could could a different outcome have been influenced by the U.S. and what would that outcome have been of the independence process? A different uh, or sorry, a different outcome of what? Do you, how do you mean? Uh, of the process, uh, if you look at the peace negotiations uh, and the process up to 2011, would it be possible for the U.S. to uh, use its influence, as you say, they use their influence to uh, lean on the scales uh, to make South Sudan independent? What other alternative could they have leaned towards if they wanted to? Uh, uh, and how would that have looked like? Um, yeah, uh, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, so... Uh, let's say, uh, um, I think that we'll probably have a richer discussion about it when you, when you uh, get through your other stack of books and the sun goes away and it's very rainy and you get through this one. Um, I think that uh, is a bit of a presumptive summary or a Reader's Digest summary of, of the book. But I, yeah, I, a lot of the reason I chose to write this book uh, was to uh, give a bit more depth, a bit more nuance, wrestle with these questions which are not being asked in the United States. They may be being asked in Norway. You, you would know more about that. I doubt it, uh, right? But people have moved on. And so there is just, uh, as you say, a Reader's Digest story, uh, right? Uh, for example, about the Save Darfur movement, right? No one talks about that. No one wants to look back on it now. Um, I wrestle with this in the book, uh, and I'll be provocative here. I think the Save Darfur movement did a great deal uh, of good in bringing attention to this cause, of getting it on the Western agenda, uh, of potentially stopping uh, further uh, killings or massacres in Darfur. I also think, on balance in the end, uh, it may have potentially done as much damage as it did good. Right? 
uh, and I think there's a, I, I attempt, I don't have the ultimate answer, but I attempt to wrestle with the power of popular activism, right? There are some folks in this room. Uh, this is a very important issue. It's a very important thing. How do we harness this? How do we harness it for good, right? I, I don't think there has been enough exposure about the dangers, the risks involved in harnessing that advocacy or, or presenting a simplified narrative uh, to people who genuinely want to be involved, who genuinely want to do the right thing, who genuinely want to be interested, right? When that is, uh, when there are very sp uh, specific agendas or specific policy prescriptions or, or specific uh, uh, goals uh, grafted onto the back of a uh, popular movement, uh, right? I think there are some very real risks there. So that's one small example. Um, uh, yeah, I hope I wrestle with uh, South Sudan's history here, with the remnants of, of the last civil war, with the uh, societal structures uh, involved, with the nature of corruption, uh, with uh, the character of the peace talks, the character of the very messy divorce between North and South, how those relationships with the outside uh, change as a result of that. Uh, in the end, you'll see a discussion of state formation, right, about the role of violence in societies. How does this fit uh, in a larger context as we think about these issues? What do we think about South Sudan becoming independent 50 years after uh, everybody else in Africa? And how that warps both the relationships in Africa and, and the visions and the opportunities of the South Sudanese elite, right? There's issues of social cohesion, of economics. As, as Andre mentioned, the, the belief was that uh, South Sudan's viability uh, would come through oil, right? Uh, we know the story of oil is a more complicated picture. So um, I, I did not set out to write a 400-plus page book, uh, but along the way, uh, found it hard not to wrestle with all these issues. So. Um, Again, I, I hope I do it justice, and I did set out to counter some of the popular narratives. So um, I look forward to the second part of this conversation uh, uh, once, you, once you have a chance to read. Oysin also wrote a book about South Sudan, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, Th thank you. We'll have one more question, and then uh, uh, we'll, we'll close. But let me just say wait, w one comment on this, you know, because I'm still up on the stage. It's a very good question, you know, on, on possible other outcomes and what's the narrative of this. You know, you have not, and of course it was not, it's not so much in the book and it's not the topic for today. But we can, you know, you, you mentioned, I had a phrase earlier that uh, Garang found himself on the wrong side of history. Mm. Well, when the peace negotiations really picked up speed in the early 2000s, the Sudan found itself on the wrong side of history. I don't think anything that we're discussing now would have happened if it hadn't been for certain events that totally changed global politics and, and created a space. So Absolutely. it's a very compl complex story, many, many different layers, and which is also why it's so fascinating and will continue, I think, to draw the attention of, of many people uh, for a very long time. So, Sten-Erik, the last uh, question. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm Sten-Erik Hoyen. Uh, um, I'm very happy that you wrote this book, Zach. I'm, I'm looking forward to read it. Uh, I recall you, you our. You make a several cameos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm. Uh, I, I recall our good uh, meetings uh, when he came to Juba, and uh, it was a highlight uh, every every time he came. So thank you. Uh, I think it is. It, it's very interesting uh, to look at this us and them thing, uh, us as the the outsiders and uh, and the South Sudanese themselves, because we 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 tend to. We have tend to, to, to look at ourselves as the, the, the main movers in, in the whole process. So what did we do wrong? Like uh, when George Clooney said that uh, <laughs> he saw the, what happened in Darfur as, as a personal failure. Yeah. 
and I think that is, uh, of course, as stupid as it is said, it's very precisely how we most, or many, many were thinking and, I, and are still thinking. So I think that this uh, relationship uh, with, with, with uh, uh, or this responsibility that some took is also a part of this condescending uh, attitude towards uh, the Sudanese, particularly the South Sudanese. Yeah. And if there is one thing that the South Sudanese can recall and, and can realize immediately is this condescending attitude. Uh, maybe they are not educated, maybe they are not doctors, all of them, but they can really understand this attitude. Because that is exactly what they got from their uh, brothers in the north. Then coming also towards the, the trauma in that. Because I think that we need to look at, or I, I will phrase it as, as a question. Don't you think that when we're looking at the uh, how the people were traumatized, that this is also goes for the leadership? How much, how much are their trauma, in a way, affecting their own attitudes, their own policies? Because they are behaving very awkward as political leaders from all sides, and particularly maybe the the, the main, the, the big man himself. So, so I think that there has been lots of moral or moralistic um, disappointments by by the by the politics of, of of the leaders. But which is. There are good reasons for, for that, and also in the respect of how we see ourselves as betrayed. But right. this traumatized um, people from the top to the down, to down is really creating all the, all the negative attitudes and, and behaviors that we see now from the soldiers, from the militias, from the leadership. Andrea wants me to be brief. I appreciate that comment. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there as well. Um, I also, uh, related to your point, um, cringe at the idea that, oh God, these are just awful people now, right? These are just evil men. They just think about themselves, right? Um, some of those things may be true in reality. I think it's important to understand how they got there, right? Why that is, why there is this sense of entitlement, why there is, uh, you know, and that's not my language. That's language from a lot of Southern Sudanese. You will see in the book that uh, when those things are made, uh, I very often I'm doing my best to draw South Sudanese sources on these issues, their own views of the leadership, right? Um, you will also see a lot of up close and personal uh, with Salva Kiir himself, right? Um, who I don't think set out uh, to start, uh, you know, an ethnic war, which wasn't an ethnic war to begin with, by the way, right? Um, I think Salva Kiir um, was in over his head, way over his head. Right, and this starts well before 2013. Uh, and again, that th there's no there's no apology for that, but th there is a richer, deeper uh, understanding if we are to play a role, if we are to partner uh, with South Sudanese going forward, and understanding how the the, the path he, he's walked. I'm stunned that either Salvakir and Riek Machar are alive. I'm stunned. I'm stunned having watched. So the the third part of the book, and I'll end on this. Uh, the third part of the book goes pretty far in detail into the peace process um, that began in 2013. Um, uh, and again, I uh, just provide some eyes on, uh, just a, a vehicle for, um, but brings you pretty up close and personal with, with the peace process. Uh, 
because I think it, it dem demonstrates some of this and it wrestles with some of these questions, right? The diaspora elite, how they got here, um, the really incredible pressures uh, each side is coming under from their own constituencies and why those constituencies are increasingly hard line, right? How these narratives, I sit, uh, I go back to Juba in 2016, 2017, and I sit with various uh, lower level members of each of these groups and you hear the narratives trickling down from the top, you know? What is it about their status in the movement? What is it about how they have come to believe these things? What is it about these narratives? Right? We haven't talked about narrative. That's a, I thought a lot about that in, in tr trying to tell the story, uh, the narratives that have uh, ultimately hardened over time in which South Sudanese are having trouble talking to each other, right? How those came about. I, I think these are all pertinent questions and one that uh, require us to go beyond uh, the Reader's Digest version of, well, these are just a bunch of awful people and aren't, isn't this awful? You know, again, uh, we all went through, <laughs> our own countries went through vicious, vicious struggles uh, in the lead up and, and advent of their independence. And um, again, I, I don't think that's uh, an apology. I think it's an attempt to better contextualize, better understand this in a historical perspective. Um, Great. I think that was a, a good way to end. You know, I thank you very much for your first, you know, presentation of the book and also for answering all the, the questions. And thank the audience for participating so well. Uh, I think you know um, there are many takeaways from this, not least to the long-term perspective. And in the long-term perspective, uh, we hope to be able to welcome you to Oslo again. <laughs> we know this is your favorite city. It so is actually. Welcome back. He's just he's he's just saying that. But I've been to this is my sixth trip to Oslo, and other than I think right now. Every time I've been here, it's been stunningly sunny. So I have a, uh, a pretty warped view, I think, of Oslo. Um, though I did almost end up in jail today, too. So I'll have to think twice. Good, thanks. Uh, can I just say, just in closing, uh, thank you all again for coming. Uh, again, I, uh, such a small bite here. I hope you will uh, be interested and, and read the story and, and give me your feedback and, and have this be an ongoing conversation. I want to thank the council again and Johan in particular who worked to put this together uh, and my good friend Andre who's been uh, a, a intellectual companion and sparring partner uh, and he also made me toast yesterday morning. So uh, he's a great friend and I'm honored that he would do this. So thank you. Thank you.